This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and I never trust anyone who uses graph paper. They're always plotting something. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and snores so loudly it scares everyone in the car he's driving. In this special episode, John and I go over the top 10 podcasts of the year and we'll highlight our favorite episodes and why. If you're new to the podcast, you'll also find out what you might have missed. Today, instead of rants and raves, you'll get two truths and one lie from each of us. Guest interview is with Jordan Schneider, host of the China Econ Talk podcast and newsletter. He started learning Chinese merely three years ago, but he's got a lot to share. Stay tuned for this interview filled with candor and realistic points of view. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner. Hey, I'm John Pazin coming to you from Shanghai, China. All right, this is our end of the year episode. And John, this is on our episode number 26. We started this year. We're excited. We've actually gone through this whole year. We haven't missed an episode. This is going to be the end of the year. It's going to be a little bit of review and uh, some other fun things that we're going to talk about on this episode. But we have some reviews. So, John, you want to kick us off with those? All right. So this first review comes out of the USA. It is by The Swiveling Head. And he or she says, I'm living in Taiwan and studying Chinese on my own. My coworkers express the desire to study the language, but usually bail out quickly. In lieu of personal companions on this journey, this podcast by the guys behind Mandarin Companion really does pick up my spirits. It provides a lot of useful tips each episode, and the interviews with more proficient learners of the language gives one a sense of the many possible paths forward for us in the middle of the struggle. One request, maybe a specific short lesson on using an interesting Chinese idiom or slang in one little bit each episode. All right, well, thanks. We listen to all requests and ideas, so we'll consider it. So far, we've heard a lot of people saying that they like that we're not trying to teach Chinese, but uh, we'll see. Thanks, swiveling head. I'm assuming that's maybe like the talking heads. I don't know. Who knows? Not a bobblehead, swiveling head. All right, next one. All right, our next interview comes from Shelly P. Shelly P. Shui She says, great find. I moved to Shanghai six months ago with the goal of getting my Chinese up to fluency, and I've been working really hard, sometimes losing motivation and feeling guilty about it, trying various methods, etc., etc. I found this podcast at the perfect time. Hearing other people accomplish fluency is so motivating, and the tips and tricks and interesting info about language acquisition in general are very helpful. I've even implemented some info from this podcast in my own English classrooms. Thank you. And that's Shelly P. Shreddy from South Africa. So thanks, Shelly. Appreciate that. And that's exciting. You're implementing some of this into your classroom. Cool. It is possible. So yeah, definitely work on your motivation because it helps you keep going and make it to the finish line. Okay, so we have one more. This one is from Gibson EDU in the U.S. And he or she says... I spent a couple years really devoted to learning Chinese. When my formal classes ended, I wasn't making as much time to practice and learn. Every episode of You Can Learn Chinese makes me want to hit the books and practice my conversational Chinese again. When you feel discouraged that it's just too hard to really learn Chinese, this podcast will remind you that just like anything else, Chinese is something you can learn. Also, the Mandarin Companion Breakout Series has done wonders for building my confidence as I actually know what's going on. Thanks, John and Jared. And you are welcome. That's awesome that it's worked so well for you. 
And notice uh, they said, uh, thanks, John and Jared. So, you know. Some people notice me. Oh. Yeah. Remember that one review was all Jared, 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 and all thanks, John. But hey, there we go. John's the real expert here. I feel like I'm the China hack in this, this podcast. But hey. We're a team, Jared. A team. We are. We are a team. Okay. First off, what I want to do is give you listeners a little bit of information about how this podcast is doing. Since we started this year in February, we have had about 50,000 downloads. And from what I hear for podcasts, that's pretty good. We're really happy about that. So we appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening. We have pretty much listeners, it seems like in absolutely every continent, perhaps not Antarctica, but we have everyone like all over, obviously North America, South America, Africa, Middle East, Asia, lots of listeners in Europe. John, I'm going to quiz you on one thing. Where do you think most of the listeners in Europe come from, in exclusion of the UK? Well, based on a bit of what I know, if it's not native English speakers, probably number one would be Germany. You're correct. It is. All right. It's Germany. So thanks to all you Germans out there listening. We appreciate that. And then uh, the second country would be, what's your guess? Uh, France. You're right. Are you looking at the stats here, John? Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're right on. <laughs> Come on, man. We've, we've been international for a while. I, I've seen this stuff at some point. You know, things change, so you never know. Well, our number one country for listeners, of course, is the United States. Number two is the United Kingdom. And three is China. So we have a lot of people learning Chinese in China. Then it comes down to Australia, Canada, then Germany, Taiwan, Hong Kong, France, and Singapore. So we are happy to have listeners from all over the world listening to our podcast. And what we're going to bust into here, John, is our top 10 episodes. Okay, you're talking about top 10 by stats? That's right. Top 10 most listened to podcasts. And so we're going to start at number 10. Ready? Drum roll. All right. Number 10. This episode is Chinese Immersion, the home version. That's episode number six. Okay, so lots of tips for ways that you can increase the input so you're hearing more Chinese and then ways you can read more Chinese without actually being in a Chinese-speaking environment, just increase the amount of input you're getting, right? That's right. In fact, this was one of my favorite episodes because we got to include, we talked about music, so we covered the Crazy Rich Asian soundtrack and had some of the fun songs from there. So I remember you talked about the Disney movie. What was it? Emperor's New Groove? Oh, yeah. That's a, a very good dubbed version. So we had a pretty cool snippet in there for the guy who did the voice acting for it. It's a good episode. So if you haven't listened to it, go back to episode number six, Chinese Immersion, the home version. That's our 10th most popular episode. All right. Number nine is the four keys to learning Chinese. That's episode number 13. And refresh our memory. What are these four keys? Well, the four keys were actually the four strands that's put up by Paul Nation. Oh, the four strands. Why didn't you say so, man? Well, I mean, you know, people say the four strands. I mean, when we talked about that, people were like, strands? You know, like, so we, the four keys. So we just titled the episode. But if you listen to it, you'll get what these four strands are all about. Yeah, it's that academic one, right? Yeah. But very practical also. And mind you, Paul Nation, who this episode is based off of, he's like one of the top researchers in second language acquisition in the world. Focused on vocabulary. All right. Eighth most popular episode is... Chinese Language Power Struggles, episode number four. Now, John, this was based off of an article that you had written many years ago. Yeah, this is classic. It's one that I keep hearing about from people again and again because so many people have experienced it. And I guess maybe I'm the first person to really describe it and put it out there. 
If you're having trouble trying to speak Chinese and the other person wants to speak English, you may be experiencing a language power struggle and it might uh, be interesting for you to listen to that episode and possibly read up on it as well. Okay, number seven is How to Build Listening Skills, episode number 16. Now, I can see how this is a popular episode because we talked a lot about how to get better at listening. There's a lot of great tips in that episode. Give it a listen. (laughs) Number six, writing characters. Is it worth your time? Episode number five. The answer may shock you. (laughs) Right? That's right. That's right. The answer may shock you. What do you call audio clickbait? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And the answer is... Probably not, but it depends. (laughs) That's right. It depends. But I think we've talked about this in past episodes. Like the only time I really write Chinese characters is if I had to write my address from some Chinese for somebody or have to fill out a government form. There you go. Or if you plan to be a Chinese teacher, don't embarrass yourself by not being able to write characters. That's no good. That's true. You know, I've been in some classrooms before, like I'm helping a teacher do some reading programs and and sometimes the kids are like, Lasha, you know, some shit tickets there or something. And I'm trying to write it on the board. I look at the other teacher and I'm like, uh, help. <laughs> sometimes I know it, but sometimes I don't. Anyway. All right. Number five, how to pronounce like a pro. Episode number 14. Yeah, this is one of the things that I've focused a lot on in my career. So these are some useful tips on pronunciation. Do not miss these. Everyone struggles with pronouncing Chinese. You're probably struggling somewhere. So hopefully it's useful. Good episode if you want to improve that pronunciation. All right, number four on the top 10 is Steve Kaufman, the linguist. This is episode number 15. Probably one of our more famous guests, right? Absolutely. Stephen Kaufman, he is a internet famous, world famous polyglot. He speaks about 20 languages, about 11 or 12 fluently. Yeah, so he's a really interesting guy, and he has good stuff to say, so check out that interview. And mind you, he learned Chinese as his third language back in the 70s when he was a diplomat for the Canadian government in China, so he had some very interesting stories. It was a great episode. Honestly, John, I had never heard of Stephen before. Someone had suggested, hey, you should try to get him as a a guest, and so I sent him an email, and they were like, okay. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And so (laughs) I think afterwards I found out this guy's legit. It was a very great interview. So if you haven't heard that one, it's definitely worth your time. Episode number 15. Check it out. Number three on the top 10 list. We're getting close to number one is Chinese dual immersion. It's been around longer than you think. That's episode number three. Yeah, this is my turn to say I knew nothing about this because, you know, I've been in China. Dual immersion has only taken off in the States in, in recent years, I think. Yeah, roughly in the last 10 to 15 years, it's kind of more taken off. I think there's roughly about 350 Chinese dual immersion schools in America right now. In that episode, John, we actually first talked a little bit about your own story about learning Chinese. But the interview was with Caitlin Lee, and she attended a Chinese dual immersion school in San Francisco, I think starting in the 80s, late 80s. It was like one of the very first Chinese dual immersion programs, even in the United States. And she's since graduated and she went on to college and she's on with her career and is married and has a kid. And so it's, it's really interesting. It was a great interview to kind of learn about the impact that the Chinese dual immersion program had on someone's life. Because maybe even listening, there's people who have kids that are in Chinese dual immersion programs or at least aware of them. So it's a great episode to listen to. And Caitlin Lee is not a heritage learner, right? That's right. She's a whitey white girl, right? <laughs> Lee is her married name and her husband is 
yeah, Caucasian also. So she's, it's just L-E-E. It's, she's not Asian. All right. Number two on the list. Okay. Now I kind of feel kind of dumb saying this one, but number two on the list is our introduction. It's only like a five minute podcast. <laughs> Everyone's like, who are these guys? <laughs> That's right. In that episode, we introduce ourselves and we kind of give you an overview of what this podcast is going to be all about. And how do you think we've done so far? Could it be that people are attracted by the five-minute length? It's quite possible, but the number one is not five-minute. Oh. oh, snap. All right, tell us. Okay, and number one, drum roll. Okay, and the number one episode is Why Chinese is Taught the Way It Is, episode number two. And I'm pretty surprised. Yeah. Well, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised why this is our top episode. But in this, we talk a lot about the traditional mindset of like how Chinese is taught to native speakers and then kind of bleeds over into how it's taught as a second language. Yeah, I feel like this is something that's really useful for all learners of Chinese. And it's also really good if you want to have a conversation with a Chinese teacher about how to teach Chinese. It brings up a lot of important points that are really relevant to everyone's studies. So have a listen. That was a great episode. And there's our top 10 episodes so far on You Can Learn Chinese. Okay, so next up, we're going to continue reviewing some of our past episodes. But this time, rather than looking at the stats, we're going to talk about our own personal favorites. Jerry, do you want to kick it off? Okay, personal favorites. Top three. This is my number three. How to Build Reading Fluency. That's episode number 11. Now, this one's one of my favorites because well, obviously, I mean, you know, we, we publish these graded readers and I talk to teachers about this all the time, about the importance of building reading fluency. So this one's like a really important one to me. And it's one where I feel like I have a whole lot to say. I, I continue to always hammer through this thing on when we're talking to these podcasts about the importance of like reading speed, you know, reading fluency like that is so highly correlated with overall language fluency. And sometimes people overlook it. They just say, well, you know, speaking, of course, is very important, but it's one of the aspects, but they're all linked together. And if you have high reading fluency, it correlates with everything else. So I think it's a great episode if you are looking to not just build your reading fluency, but build your overall language fluency. Listen to that one. It's episode number 11, How to Build Reading Fluency. Classic Jared. I'm not surprised. <laughs> now, reading speed. <laughs> Talk about reading. Now, reading fluency, reading speed, good stuff, but... I think you said enough. Okay, so mine. I want to go with podcast number seven, The Myth of Learning Chinese Like a Child, because this was definitely my experience. I've actually spent quite a bit of time trying to find good Chinese books. I've been frustrated so much. And every time I can identify an issue like this and figure out a solution and then share it with people, it just gives me a lot of satisfaction. I hope this is useful to you. A lot of people have this idea. Don't fall down that rabbit hole and lose your way. Okay, so then my number two, number two on my list is Knowledge Versus Proficiency, episode number 12. And this one, I gosh, we, I can't, we encounter this all the time. You yeah. know, people are like, oh, I've been studying lots of Chinese. I know lots of vocab. I just need to learn more vocab. No, no. Well, maybe, but you may know a lot, but you're not proficient in it. And sometimes you're proficient and you may not know a lot, but that's, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a balance between those two. And so if, if you are in like kind of this boat where you've been learning Chinese for a long time and you think you, you actually know a lot of words, you can read lots of characters or at least recognize a lot of characters, but you can't seem to put it together and actually speak the language or do any comprehensible output, then this episode's for you. 
Episode number 12, knowledge versus proficiency is a very, very common challenge and problem that all sorts of L2 language learners encounter. Truth. This episode is legit. All right. That might be on my list, but now it's not. I am moving to my own number two, which is Tones, Music, and Confidence, our podcast number eight. So um, when I did my master's thesis work on teaching Chinese and how foreigners learn Chinese, I focused on tones and specifically tone pairs. So I've given a lot of thought to how we learn tones and also psychological factors. And one of those is confidence. And on this particular podcast, um, I did the interview. It was Dr. David Moser. He's a really knowledgeable, awesome guy, knows a ton of Chinese and all kinds of linguistic stuff, uh, also a musician and a very humble man, but it's an enlightening episode. And that's number eight, Tones, Music, and Confidence. Side note, uh, Dr. David Moser is brought up in today's interview. Oh. <laughs> it might raise your eyebrows, actually. We'll just leave it at that. Cliffhanger for you SDVU listeners. Okay, so my number one favorite episode that we've done so far is How to Find Your Motivation, episode 19. This is something that is so important. And it was a great episode for me to even record because it allowed me to even think through some of my own stories about learning Chinese. And I even encountered, John, you know, when we talked about this, some things that I don't think I had ever fully vocalized. I thought about them, but I don't think I'd ever said it out loud about why I had gotten really serious and trying to learn Chinese and was basically for my kids because I knew that, you know, they were going to have to go to Chinese local schools and I really had to get a higher level of proficiency. So in that way, it's a bit of an endearing episode to me, but also, you know, we meet people all the time who, you know, people say, oh, I could never learn Chinese. I'm like, well, you need a motivation. You can, but you, you got to have a reason. And I've ran across people sometimes, sometimes like students in school, but, you know, they're learning the language, but they're not into it. And they just don't have their motivation, have a reason. And so it's like you can do anything, you know, you can learn anything, but you got to have your motivation. And an episode is really important to help you find that and to think about what is that thing that's driving you to learn this language. And frankly, it's different for everyone. Yeah, it's a really complex issue. And it also gets into psychology, like I was talking about with the other one. And actually, Jared, this is my third one as well. It's probably not my number one, but it's in my top three. And even just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a client all about motivation. And we had to dig really deep and cover a lot of territory about, you know, some struggles he's having and how that relates to his motivation and what we can do. And it's just a really complex subject. And it's worth a lot of consideration, not only finding your motivation, but keeping your motivation and cultivating your motivation so you can keep learning. Because as we may have mentioned before, learning Chinese is not a quick or easy thing. So you got to stay motivated. I think this delves into the human aspect. I mean, we can sit down here and talk about strategies and tactics and best ways to learn. But you as a person, as a human, if your heart's not in it, if your head's not in it, I mean, you're probably not going to get very far. Or if you do, it's just going to be really slow progress and you may resent it in the end or regret you know, some of the time you spent. So it addresses like John is you know, saying about, you know, things are going on in your life, the human aspect of learning a language. It's really important. Yeah, you're not a robot, guys. Don't treat yourself like a robot. So, John, one thing I do want to bring up, I'd have a favorite interview that I wanted to mention. All right. So 
one of the great things about doing this podcast is I've had that opportunity to just talk to so many people about their stories of learning Chinese. And you know everyone's story is different at the beginning, but when you get into these stories and hear their experiences and like how they learn Chinese, it's so varied and you know, some had great ways that they were learned and other people went through some really hard experiences. But there's that common thread of that motivation and having a reason to learn Chinese. That's that's a, a thread that goes through all these interviews. But um, I do want to bring out one interview I just thought was really special. And it was the interview on the last episode. It was on our Christmas episode, episode 25 with Mervyn Cook. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that a lot of times I've talked to people really like, hey, what, what, really, how did you learn the language? You know, talking about some of the things they did and everything. And we got into that with Mervin, but what I really appreciated about his story, it was like he, he went through like his life story and Chinese was part of it, but it was like how he and his life, he connected with more people and about his search, I think, for happiness. There's like love and and just, you know, sorrow and pain and how Chinese helped him heal from losing his father and stuff. And it was just a really heartwarming story and just a really great one. So that was just one of my favorite interviews. And Mervin, he's a great guy. And I'm so glad I got to know him, get in touch with him. So I want to give a shout out to that as my favorite interview of the year. All right. I haven't actually listened to this one yet. I've been super busy with my family in town for Christmas, but I will. It sounds really good. Yeah, you should, man. Yeah, some of our listeners might need a good pick-me-up after watching the new Star Wars movie. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just spoiled it, man. Okay, so now we have everybody's favorite section, the word from our sponsor, which is Mandarin Companion. Easy to read Chinese novels. All right, we're going to make this one quick because we launched a new book, and it's called Xiaoming Boy Sherlock. So this is a new breakthrough level story. It's written using 150 basic characters and it covers kind of like the the life of Sherlock Holmes when he's, what, what is he, eight years old, 10 years old in this book? <laughs> Crap, I don't remember. 10? Okay, John doesn't quite remember, but he's young. <laughs> he's an eight to 10 year old boy and he encounters some mysteries. Now, this book was a real big challenge to write because we only had 150 characters to use. Oh, man. So many dead ends. It's like one of those mazes where you're just continually backtracking <laughs> just about the plot, about the character names, about the things they can do, the things they can say, the places, everything. And that's the challenge with 150 characters. But yeah, it turned out pretty well. Yeah, it did. I remember we sat on like two hours trying to hash out a, a simple storyline for this book. <laughs> it was hard. But I think the finished product, you'll be happy with it, especially if this is going to be the first book you can read. It's just so awesome to actually read a book that's low enough level for you that you can actually comprehend. And Gaoming is the Chinese Sherlock in our level one story. So if you can read Xiaoming, Boy Sherlock, you are well on your way towards reading our level one readers. So... You can go get it today on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, wherever you get your books. And you can do this. You can read Chinese. Okay, we're going to wrap up the first half of the podcast with a fun segment. We had done one of these before. I did what's going to be two truths and one lie. So let's go ahead and kick this off first with John. John, you've got two truths and one lie. So spit them out, and I'm going to try to figure out which ones are true and which one's the lie. All right. Now, I know that some of our listeners have read our books, maybe even all of our books. So I thought it would be fun to do a little bit of trivia. And if you haven't read our books, it's okay. You can learn a bit about them. So I'm going to say three things. You ready? Ready. Number one, we do not plan to write a level three. 
any books in level three. Okay. Number two, we do not plan to write any more level two books. Okay. And number three, we're never going to publish any books that are romances. Okay. All right, go, Jared. Those, like, John, are like, did you have a strategy session without me? These, like, seem all, like, blatantly false. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) I think we already have a level three title picked out. Uh, What's your answer? uh, And... I don't have a romance. No, you have a Chinese romance novel picked out. And we're working on a level two. What's wrong with you, John? <laughs> I don't know. I say they're all false. Final answer. Actually, the lie is that it's two truths and a lie. Yeah, that was uh, three lies. Yo! So just in case you're wondering, there are more level twos coming. There is a level three coming eventually. There are more level ones coming. And our next book is a romance. That's right. Or sort of a romance. Low-key romance. Okay, right. You threw me for a loop there, John, and probably all of our listeners, too. They're like, what? <laughs> yeah, they were they were screaming, I want more level two, I want level three. <laughs> all right, so don't worry, guys. We hear you. It's coming. All right, so how about you, Jared? Do you have two truths and one lie for real? Okay, yes, yes, I do. And now these are, <laughs> these are two truths and one lie about my China life experiences. I've had a lot of interesting and fun experiences during my time in China. So, all right, I'm going to give you the first one. You ready? Go ahead. Okay, number one, I ride an electric scooter around uh, Shanghai. That's uh, my preferred mode of travel. That's true. And, and one time I was cruising down the road, a policeman, he was trying to direct traffic. And as I was cruising by the intersection, he stepped right in front of me and I just totally like plowed the guy. It wasn't like really hard, but it knocked him over and it knocked me over and it wasn't good. We all walked away. We were fine, but um, I had this policeman. <laughs> All right, that sounds like something you would do, but I'll withhold judgment. Keep going. All right, number two, I met LeBron James in Shanghai. Okay, number three. Number three, I once was paid to impersonate a German oil executive. I had to give a little speech. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to say number one is true. Number three sounds quite plausible, so I think you've never met LeBron James in Shanghai. Okay, are you ready? So actually, I did meet LeBron James. But not in Shanghai. In Shanghai. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he was just on the subway one day. Why didn't you tell me about that? No. It, it was this big event sponsored by Nike, and uh, LeBron James was there. So yeah, I took some guys, and we went and saw him. There were a ton of people there, but because I was like, you know, one of the only foreigner guys that was there, I actually just got to meet him, shook his hand, met his dad, talked to his dad for a little bit. He was out like they're doing some exhibition thing. Anyway, so yeah, I met LeBron James in Shanghai. Huh. All right. You fooled me. And so the lie is I ran into a policeman on the street. I've never done that. (laughs) That is like something you would do, man. I know. You know, one time a policeman, he tried to stop (laughs) me in the street. I think I was legally going the wrong way on the street and he stopped to try to to get me to stop and I just swerved out around him. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not stopping. Because <laughs> there's a law like in Shanghai, like the policemen, they're not allowed to like chase you on bikes. And so I, I didn't even stop. I just swerved around the guy. Uh, anyway. Way to respect the local laws. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Wild West sometimes out there. Um, but I did get paid to impersonate a German oil executive. And I didn't realize it until I was ready to get up there. And they gave me this, we just want you to get up there and read this thing. They brought me to this conference to just be there. And just, they wanted to say, you know, we just need a white guy here. It's this rent a type of a thing. And uh, 
And they said, well, you need to just give this little speech. And so I got up there and then get up in English and someone translated. And as I gave the speech, uh, I found out that I was a German oil executive. So there you go. That's my stories. And I'm sticking to it. And as a result, people invested millions of RMB into that company that you helped, huh? I frankly, I have no idea. I don't even know what the conference was about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That does happen. It does happen. This is China. All right. So interview time. Let's do it. Yeah, man. I was like aggressively tweeting at you guys being like, I'd be a great guest. Like, I want to share all my ideas <laughs> for a while now. Honestly, I never saw the tweets, but he recently started working with John to learn Chinese. And that's how we got connected. I am Jordan Schneider. I am the host of the China Econ Talk newsletter, as well as podcast. It's always great to have another podcaster on the show. There's something about these guys. I moved to China three years ago. I was a Yenching scholar, graduated in December of 2018, worked for six months at Kuaishou, which is Douyin or TikTok's big competitor domestically, and am now trying to freelance full time, which is an interesting new challenge. In a way, I think Jordan represents the new generation of Chinese learners who frequently cast aside traditional educational models, focus on what works, and carve out their own path to fluency. His candor and experience are both insightful and refreshing. Don't miss out on this one. Stay with us. So, Jordan, I got to start out with the basic question. Why did you start learning Chinese? I kind of always had a bug in me. I think it first started with my first job out of college. So I was working at the Eurasia Group, which is based in D.C. and does a political risk analysis. So I was hired to work on the U.S. team where I covered stuff like TPP and financial policy and fiscal policy, elections. And this was like 2013, 2014. And back then, American politics was kind of flat. Like there wasn't a lot of new legislation. There was like a nice president who did predictable things. <laughs> um, and sitting next to me was the Chinese team. And the Chinese team every day, you know, there was like Boshi Lai, there was the third plenum. There are all these like exciting reforms. Like Japan and China were gonna go to war at some point. I was just thinking, man, like I should really learn more about what's going on over the cubicle wall. Fast forward a few years, Trump wins the election, so working in Washington doing sort of international policy stuff as someone who's a little more left-leaning was not a super exciting career move. And then I received this scholarship from the Yenching Academy based out of Beida to go and study for a master's degree. I figured, why not? So at that time, did you speak any Chinese? Had you started learning? No. So I came to China with maybe 50 characters under my belt. Well, 50 characters is something. So you at least spent some time learning before you got into it, right? So I came to China with maybe 50 characters, maybe 50 hours total of Mandarin under my belt. But the thing I did, which was probably the smartest decision I've ever made over the course of my Mandarin learning journey, was to spend my first two months in Guilin with a CLI doing full-time, total heads down, like hermit-style Mandarin learning. Having this time carved out with no other demands, no English language workplace to go with, no friends no colleagues who speak English was really, really crucial just to get the ball rolling. Because I think for a lot of people learning Mandarin, if, if they come to a big city, it's sort of like easy enough to get around and you don't have 
enough pressure on you from like a I'm lonely perspective as well as just like a mind share perspective to really put all your time in. And I think that really getting from like beginner to intermediate is the least fun phase. And you really need to set yourself up in a good situation for you to be able to get through that as fast as possible to get to the point where people are willing to have conversations and you're able to engage with more interesting materials. So you went down to CLI down there, Guilin. I actually know uh, Robert Fried. He's one of the founding directors there and his brother too. I met him at one of the uh, Chinese language conferences. So you went down there first before you went up to Beijing to study? Yeah. So I showed up there in June and then my program started in September. That's not part of the program. I mean, you made that decision say, hey, I'm going to go here first and try to get some Chinese under my belt before I head into the program. Yes. This was paid out of pocket and on my own time. Jordan, I want to hear a little bit more about your motivations. Now, you're getting into like what you actually did to learn Chinese, but you know, it's not like every day someone drops everything and goes to learn Chinese. I understand that maybe your career prospects were a little bit limited due to the change in administration in D.C. You could have gone and done a gazillion other things. Why did you say, I'm just going to drop everything, I'm going to go learn Chinese? So there's another big part of this motivation to go out and explore and see the world and immerse myself in a new culture, which is that in December of 2015, I had a pretty serious concussion where I ended up spending a full year out on medical leave recovering from that. And oh, man. You know, once I finally like got my wits about me and I wasn't suffering from the nausea and the dizziness and the headaches, going back to my job in Westport, Connecticut at the time was not really exciting. It's like I felt at that point like, I have my life back, which was basically taken from me. I, I pretty much spent an entire year sitting at home in dark rooms and then doing really boring therapies. It was a sort of thing where like, okay, let's widen the aperture one more time. China's an interesting place. People say it's going to be important. I read enough news to know that's the case. I think I was ready for a big change. Mm -hmm. So I was 27 years old when I first moved to China with no, uh, with no Mandarin language background. Most people who move to China from the Anglo-speaking world tend to have gotten into Chinese a little earlier. Maybe they start studying Mandarin in college or they come right after graduating from undergrad and come here to teach English or something. Um, moving at 27 was a little older than I think your average cohort. And that was another thing that pushed me to really focus on my Mandarin as soon as possible because there was this nice little benefit of feeling like I was a little behind the curve. So wanting to catch up to my younger peers who spoke much better than me was a little motivation. But I just want to say to the audience out there that mid to late 20s is certainly not too late to start tackling something as difficult as Mandarin. I agree with that. I didn't start learning Chinese till I was 30 years old. So <laughs> can be done. I want to know a little bit about this. Why did you decide to come to China to learn Chinese? I mean, you could have moved to China to learn about China and not learn Chinese. I mean, certainly, you know, people who have lived in China for 20 years and don't speak Chinese. Yeah. Why did you feel that it was important for you to also learn Chinese if you wanted to be here? There was never really a doubt in my mind that I was going to spend a lot of time learning Chinese. I'm a pretty outgoing person. And to be limited to only talk to like, you know, the 0.01% of Chinese people that have conversational English just seemed a little silly. Also, having put myself in an environment where there's very low English skills like Guilin, if you want to do anything, you're going to have to learn Chinese. So initially, I had this motivation like, OK, I'm going to get past beginner level. And once you get past beginner level, then Chinese gets fun. 
And then, you know, you feel like there's an entire new world to explore, a new world of apps, a new news ecosystem, a new entertainment ecosystem. And I think that's been my motivation kind of getting me from beginner intermediate up to more advanced. I feel like there's such a vibrant sort of universe of contemporary culture and thinking and writing that like a billion people use on a daily basis. And there's so little that ends up getting into Western media. And when it gets into Western media, you know, it's filtered through layers of journalists and, you know, like the thousand people on Twitter who are looking at this stuff. But like imagine seeing China through the peephole of English language news coverage is really limiting. Just being here, you very quickly realize that. And it ends up being really fun knowing that you are sort of privy to some sort of information or news or or TV show or movie that very few people who aren't native Mandarin speakers can access and process. You know, you bring up something interesting I hadn't thought about before, but I have gotten to know different journalists for even some large newspapers that are living in China, the other correspondents. And it's surprising that some of them don't speak Chinese. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a bummer. You know, on the one hand, those folks will say, hey, look, you know, journalism, it's a trade like being a lawyer and you can apply it in lots of different situations. And a lot of these news outlets, they have a handful of Chinese nationals, mostly young, mostly female, who end up becoming the researchers and do the bulk of the work, the bulk of the interviews and the translation. And they find the stories. Yep. Older, largely white, largely male reporters, of which I'll count one as myself, sort of like (laughs) feed off that. I kind of knew that dynamic. And as like a white dude, you know, you can sort of get away with it because you get all this white privilege in China. But I felt like it was the least I could do to really kick myself in the butt and learn the language if I wanted to at some point be able to have differentiated opinions about China. Well, I want you to go back now and talk a little bit about your experience in learning Chinese at Beijing University. And for those of you who are listening, he said Beida, and that's the shorthand for Beijing University. And I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about university programs. But so Jordan, tell us a little bit about that and what your experience was like there studying. The instruction was a waste of time, to be honest. I think for anyone who's serious about the language, one-on-one or like really small classes is so much more valuable than being in a course with 20 people and, and one teacher. And at this point, given like globalization and 4G internet, you can get classes that are taught one-on-one for $10 an hour, which even to most students is something that in the Western world, at least, is probably affordable. So my Beijing language education, there were like 20 people and we would go through this textbook, which was 20 years old. And half of the time, the teacher would say, oh, actually, people don't really say this anymore. Or, you know, I'd have a language partner and they'd look through what we were learning and they're just like, yeah, like, I have no idea why you're learning this word. You know, this is another thing where I think if what you're doing is teaching Chinese And particularly, if you're not in a constant improvement mindset from a teaching perspective, (laughs) you get very set in your ways. And unfortunately, a lot of the teachers were set in like 2003 ways. It was a real bummer to me because I have invested a lot of time in sort of like the meta learning aspect of Chinese, you know, listening to your podcast, reading Hacking Chinese, uh, spending time on the All Set Grammar Wiki. And for my teachers, you know, to not have any awareness of things that are objectively like better, you know, like space learning repetition and and the stuff you can do in Anki and like the flashcard modes in Pleco and whatnot. I sort of wrote them off and end up charting my own course 
mostly by using language partners, one-on-one tutoring, and just sort of incorporating different methods from what's what's available online about best practices. Jordan, I also want to know, just for reference here, what years did you study at Beta? So I showed up in the fall of 2017 and then graduated in a year and a half. So in December 2018. Okay. So we're talking even like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to point this out for our listeners of Jordan that you're talking about your experience there. And this was like a year ago. And for those of you who may not be aware, I mean, Beijing University, it's one of the, it's like, I mean, them and Tsinghua are like the top universities in China, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's like Harvard. Well, it's Harvard for Chinese students who are studying Chinese majors, right? So, you know, the best professors in physics and the best professors in history and the best Chinese national students in physics and history and whatnot are all at Beida. But just because the school has a fancy name doesn't necessarily mean this like totally ancillary product that they put out, which is Chinese language learning for foreigners, is going to be sort of up to global standards. And the thing is, like, the global standards are not like the HSK, right? Global standards are the sort of content that you guys are putting out. The global standards are changing all the time. And if you're using a textbook that's, you know, 15 years old, you're just like six, seven generations behind. I think the other thing that's really important to understand is like what it means to learn Chinese in 2019 is very different from what it meant to learn Chinese even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. (laughs) I've gotten by without I sort of know how to write my name. But aside from that, I cannot write anything, you know, like physically writing like with a pen and paper. And that has not hindered me in any way whatsoever. Basically, I told my teachers, I was like, I do not care. Like, give me a D, but I'm going to not waste my time learning how to handwrite. And they're like, really? But it's so important. But you can memorize stuff. Um, But at the end of the day, almost every Chinese national who is not a language teacher will agree with you that spending time on this stuff is a waste of time. Just given the ability to like type pinyin on your computer, on your phone, basically doing anything aside from like signing up for a gym membership, I think is the last time I had to write in Chinese. I totally agree. You know, Jordan, I've said this a number of times on this podcast, but the only time when I really handwrite characters is when I'm filling out a government form. And I own a business in China, and I only have to fill out these forms typically for something related (laughs) to my business. And nowadays, you have my employees take care of like writing that out. You know, it's like ridiculous. Yeah, it was really frustrating. At one point, I was like, I want to move up a level. This class is too slow for me. And the administration like didn't let me do that because I had my D, even though I was learning faster than any other student in my little class. So, you know, the other irony is like David Moser was our head at the time of the Yenching Academy, and he's been teaching Chinese in various forms for 20 years. He's like a world leading expert in the topic. And what I thought was hysterical was at one point he was giving a lecture and he was telling us, you know, guys, if at some point you're going to have to trade off your grades for your Mandarin, like pick your Mandarin. And I'm sitting there thinking like, dude, like you run the program. What? <laughs> like if anyone, like why can't you create a program where these sort of things are aligned and the more Chinese you learn, like the better grade you get. And he was, he was frustrated too. And he's like, look, you know, I'm dealing with the system. There are these teachers they are already here. They've been doing it for so many years. They like to use the textbook they use. I'm working on it, guys. I'm doing my best. But it, I think it just really goes to show first the sort of inertia of domestic mainland university teaching because they really don't have all that much incentive. They don't have like the knowledge as well as the incentive to really 
adjust to the new era of Chinese language learning. And also just like the importance of really carving your own path and not necessarily going off of the reservation, but putting in the time to understand what the best ways to learn Chinese are and acting on that and not necessarily listening to your teachers who may or may not be up to date or have your real focus at heart. What also is interesting, and I think this is more up for debate, um, the writing thing I think is a no-brainer, but the ability to sight read without using technical aids, I think is a little overrated just in the discourse. So right now I run this newsletter called China Econ Talk, and I um, every week I find an interesting article on WeChat. And the way I end up translating is I first go through like Fani Yodao or like Google Translate and kind of go through it once. And then for the words I don't understand, I'll like mouse over with Peri Peri, which is a Chrome add-on. And I think like it's surprising to people who've never learned Chinese how far you can get with using like digital translation software to read texts. And on the one hand, like I think it would be great to read and like I try to read and I work on my reading, but the sort of like functional fluency, particularly in a business setting you can get by relying on online translators is really surprising. Um, and on the one hand, it, it can be a bit of a crutch, um, but I think it's like a sort of thing where you where you sort of end up using it as a tool and as a study method. So what I do sometimes is like first read an article in Google Translate and then try to read it just in Chinese without any help. Those sorts of methods are just like so far beyond the ideas of a mainland Chinese language teacher who's been teaching Chinese for 20 years. And I think having people who've learned Chinese as a second language get into this business of teaching best practices is really important. And that's why I commend you guys for doing this show, because sharing these sorts of things is not what you're going to get if you think all the answers are going to come from your teacher. I like something you just said there, Jordan, is that using like mouse over tools, a lot of times I say I'm not a huge fan of them, but you know, I do use them. And I think you said something that was really important, delineating the difference is that using it as a tool versus a crutch. I think that also depends, like when you get to a certain level, you don't have graded materials. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff for beginners and you get like low elementary and then low intermediate. But man, when you start getting the inter upper intermediate and advanced, there's not that stuff. And you've got to use tools to help you bridge some of that gap. But I always say is that, hey, if that gap is, you know, like 50 percent, then, you know, you're going to probably have to rely too much on the tools. It's going to become a crutch. Yeah. But, you know, if it's relying on me and 20 percent, depending on what your stretch is, then it can be still helpful. Yeah. I would also say that consuming content in Chinese that you think is interesting is really, really important especially if you're not doing it for class and you don't have someone grading you, so you're not really forced to. So I would argue upping that from like 15 to 20% to 30 to 40%, if you're going to use these tools and end up consuming more in Chinese is a good trade. Like I found it really hard as an adult um, to find good content that's sort of relevant to my interests of like politics and economics and technology. You know, there's no one really writing like easy level stuff. And I feel like even the easy level stuff, I just wouldn't find interesting. Mm. So what I've done is reach higher and do harder stuff that I've had to use more Google translation and whatnot. But the fact that I'm still interested in spending, you know, a half hour, hour reading Chinese stuff every day with those tools is a better outcome than me being bored reading something easy and ending up not doing it. So it's definitely a fine line, but I would encourage folks to do hard stuff. One of the things I've started, which I think is really useful, is watching Chinese TV shows on YouTube. Sometimes they have English language subtitles 
uh, that you can toggle on and off. So if you hit like C, then you get like the English language closed captioning and being able to sort of turn that on and off and like tune exactly to how lost you are in the show. And, you know, if you feel like really confused, you can go back and like see the English and then try to go for five minutes and not have the Chinese. But having ways where you can vary the amount of help you're getting related to how the content is over time is really interesting and useful. Yeah, that's great. Jordan, so what did you do to learn Chinese? You went through this program, it was scholarship, but you didn't really learn in class, okay? So, I mean, what did you do to learn Chinese? So the first thing I tried to do was just hang out in Chinese. And in a program like Yenching Academy, that's not the most straightforward thing in the world. 70% of our classmates were non-mainlanders and maybe the entirety, maybe 40% were fluent in Chinese. But actively kind of like seeking out Chinese language environments required me to not necessarily go the easy route and hang out with like the Americans who were super cool and super interesting. But it was sort of a decision I made early on to really prioritize being in Chinese language environments. So that meant, for instance, joining the sort of like larger Beida student clubs as opposed to like the Yenching specific ones. So what did I end up doing? I was in like the badminton club and the the Guohua club, like the landscape painting club. Uh, The best thing I did was join the musical club in Beida. So the year I was there, there were I think like 60 people in the club and we put on a full production of Hamilton. Wow. (laughs) And aside from like the singing part, You know, so there was me, there was one English student, one Korean, and then all Chinese kids who just were in love with uh, Western musicals. And aside from the the words, of course, which we didn't translate, all the direction, all the staging, that was all done in Chinese. And that was probably my most rewarding experience. But I guess the big takeaway is like, understand that there's going to be some sacrifice and you're going to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. So you immersed yourself in groups of other Chinese people. I guess they're people who weren't speaking English. And I'm sure a lot of them did speak English, but you're like, hey, I'm here to learn Chinese, right? Yeah. But characters have to explicitly learn too, right? Yeah. From a day-to-day perspective, I think I would do like 40 new Anki cards a day. I was very rigorous about that for my first year. And so the way I would make these cards is uh, I would meet up with my my language partner, and we would just have conversations. And anytime any new word would come up, any new phrase would come up, we would write it down and then I would record her saying the audio and memorize it. What I would also do is I had downloaded a very large bank of Anki cards. And for anyone listening, Anki is a flashcard app and it's used by many language learners, especially Chinese learners. So anyways, there are two ways to sort of handle Anki. First is you learn from pre-made decks. And second, which I recommend, um, is to uh, sort of make your own flashcards. So what I did ended up being a combination of both. So when I had a tutor who I could sit next to and who could record stuff and help me write cards for me, I would do that. And then the other thing I would do is walking around, um, whenever people said something that I didn't understand, whenever I was watching a movie, I would pinion the word. And in Pleco, if you go to history, you can see everything you've looked up in the past. And then every day, what I would do is sort of search those particular words in my giant flashcard bank that I'd had assembled through downloading maybe, I think I have like 30,000 cards, find sentences that had those new words, and then add them to the deck I was studying as well. So you'd get like a combination of 
words found throughout the day, as well as like the really, really good stuff, which are the cards that are especially created for you. And I think that balance was the right balance of making sure that like every card I put in was something I'd been exposed to at least a little bit. Because I found that learning cards like totally from scratch without any context whatsoever was hard. The tricky thing is that like sometimes some days you just get more than others and having those like fresh Pleco lookups be the cards you see that day makes learning these new words a lot easier. So that's something that really helped support your learning. I get that. All right. So Jordan, I want to shift this a little bit. And I want to know, like, by learning Chinese, what opportunities have opened up to you? So, you know, when you say opportunities, I think definitely first thing that comes to mind is, is our professional ones, right? And I would certainly say that I've definitely gotten interviews for jobs that I wouldn't have had I not been able to speak any Chinese whatsoever. 2019 is very different from 2003. Just being able to speak fluent English and a little bit of Chinese is sort of table stakes, not necessarily like a golden ticket. And it's really important having some professional background, having some work experience, having some special skills aside from just language are more important than ever in today's job environment, particularly given that there are so many more uh, Chinese nationals who've spent time abroad and who have really strong English. Opportunities, I think like traveling is probably one of the really wonderful things that you're able to do. You obviously can go to lots of different places in China uh, without speaking Chinese, but the reception you get, the conversations you're able to have, the ability you're able to explore and make connections with folks is very different if you can sit down and have a conversation for 45 minutes in a native language. And I think making friends as well, um, even with Chinese nationals who speak really good Chinese, I think people respond differently if they sort of recognize that you've actually put in the work to learn their language. And, and for me, I really see it as like a sign of respect as much as anything else. So now, Jordan, you've taken the time to learn Chinese and even your job and your podcast and stuff right now, you, you're really involved in a lot of the economic aspects of, of China. So I want to ask your perspective on how important do you think it is to understand Chinese to understand the current events and the economic and political developments in China? So first off, I want to say my Chinese is still not that good. But what's really remarkable to me is even having B plus Mandarin, given the ability to engage with primary sources and read Weibo and read WeChat and read Chinese language articles and reports, you can have like differentiated knowledge and takes from people who write about China, but don't speak any Chinese. So I don't necessarily think of myself as like a real subject expert in a topic, but because I have access to all this information, even though it's painful to wade through because it's in Mandarin, having the, the language background to get into source material, which is incredibly important. And for most policymakers, academics, commentators, they don't speak Chinese, which is understandable. But all I'd say is like, as a young person who is interested in sort of like global affairs and technology and policy, this is a real skill and a real differentiator. And it's very empowering to be able to work with material that other people don't. You know, when, when I was in undergrad, I was a history major. And, you know, if you're a history major, what do you do? You spend time in archives, right? And it feels like given my language ability, I just have like this whole giant library of archives, which 99% of people who write about this sort of stuff don't necessarily have access to. So for the future, do you see the importance of learning Chinese increasing or decreasing? 
on net, I have no idea. But China and like China issues are definitely not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> if there's like a real breakthrough in translation software, in conversational tools, I mean, you know, maybe we are the last generation of folks who are going to have like big returns from getting language in our heads instead of just on our computers. I think the returns to becoming an intermediate Chinese speaker have never been higher because the technology now allows you at an intermediate level to consume professional level material with the help of Peri Peri and translation software and Pleco and whatnot. Learning Chinese in 2019, you get to the good stuff faster because of the technology. And you can sort of know enough to be able to investigate like where the technology misses. And I think it makes it a really exciting time to be learning Mandarin right now because you have all these tools at your disposal. So it's 2019, and who knows what 2020 and beyond is going to hold for us. <laughs> it's so true. Well, Jordan, hey, I thanks for coming on our show. It's been enlightening to hear your perspective and to hear about your experiences. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Likewise. Keep it up, guys. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, mechanic, carpenter, midwife, nurse, and the one guy named Jason. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank Jordan Schneider and my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazden. See you next time.